Fantastic. Uh, those of you that don't know me, my name's Mig, youth pastor here. Um, the young people are out there. Mark was going to take them outside this morning and do a little bit of worship stuff out in creation. I hope he's done a rethink. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? So we're in this season thinking about Jesus' favourite culture uh, and what it means to have Jesus at the centre of what we do and why we have the values that we do as a fellowship and why we live the way that we do as community together. And we're exploring that. And this morning we're going to think about worship. So um, hopefully those of you that have been around for a little while will have figured by now that actually worshipping Jesus is one of our core values. It's a lot what we're about. And whether or not you've been around for a little while or you've just turned up this morning, hopefully you've already got a sense of how much that matters to us. Um, And why is that? Why is that so important to us? And it's because um, of a few different things, I think. Oh, there we go. Hang on a minute. Westminster Shorter Catechism. I can never say that word properly. Catechism, yes. Not cataclysmic, okay? Not a cataclysm. Uh, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In a sense, it's what we're made for. And I would... Suggest, I uh, suggest that actually worship is something that we make for. It's part of our whole purpose and our being. And because of that, it's something that all humans do naturally um, and find an expression for. I'd like to say that in a sense, it's actually woven into the fabric of who we are as human beings. Now, of course, not everybody would acknowledge that there is a creator God who deserves our worship, but it's been pointed out many times that actually, whether we direct our worship Godwards or not, uh, isn't the measure of whether we worship. The truth is that we all pour our hearts, our focus, our love, our attention, our devotion into things that are outside of ourselves. Unless we happen to be entirely narcissistic, of course, in which case... We tend to focus all of our attention directly inside of us. But it seems universally true that actually, if we don't direct our worship towards God, it's not that we don't worship, it's just the fact we direct it somewhere else. Worshiping God is important to us because it reorientates us. It takes the focus off us and puts the central focus of our lives and our existence on God. It's the way of saying, actually, he's God, I'm not. He's God, I'm not. There's that lovely quote from um, uh, Anne Lamott that, that says, you know, the, the difference between you and God is God is never under the illusion that he's you. And the third thing is this, that actually worshipping brings us together, doesn't it? It's something that we do corporately. It brings us all into a place of unity and commonality. And it's part of our togetherness of being big. It's part of being something that's bigger than ourselves. And of course you can worship God on your own. We can offer him even the whole of ourselves. But it's when we come together in collective worship that our barriers and our distinctions, our hierarchies and the differences between us blur into a oneness. We cease to be just about me and Jesus and my relationship with him. And we become part of the bride of Christ. We're part of something that's much bigger than ourselves, part of something bigger that Jesus is doing 
among us. And it reminds me often that actually, while God might call me individually by name, as he's called each one of us individually by name, he's always looking for a people. You are called individually by name to be long in community with the rest of God's people together. So, um, I just wanted to talk really quickly. I'm going to try and be quick, and that's a fatal mistake because it normally means one of two things. Either I fail completely or I just become entirely incoherent. So, we'll see which one of those it's going to be this morning. That's the, the quick choice. But one of my joys of working with young people particularly this year, has been taking them along to uh, worship gatherings where they get to the chance to sing and focus their hearts towards God in the presence of loads of other Christian kids that are doing the same. I tell you, there is something powerful, something extraordinary, something supernatural, something spiritually profound that happens in those places. You ever experienced that? There is something going on other than just a bunch of people being together in that place. One of the dangers is, of course, that young people grow up thinking that that's what worship is. And the best worship is when there's a big crowd and the band's fantastic and the dry ice is making the coloured lights look really cool and uh, all that stuff is happening. Um, Maybe we can understand that actually people get confused and identify that process has been what worship's about because in some way, shape or form we've connected with God himself in those moments. I like to just, in case you're worried that all of our young people think like, like, that's not worship we need to go back to satellites or something like that. Mark actually asked one of the young people at the praise picnic the other week what the, the highlight of the Satellites Youth Festival was for them. And they reflected for a minute or two and then, uh, and then just went, mm-hmm. late night worship. And Mark was, ah, oh, it's great. Was it a really cool band? Was it really good? And he was, nope. Just a bloke with an acoustic guitar helping us to focus on Jesus. And actually, the joy I had in that moment uh, of watching a bunch of young people connecting with Jesus in the quiet and the simplicity of that uh, can't express to you. But it's true for all of us, isn't it, that actually the way we learn to worship often dictates the way we encounter God most easily in worship. For some, it's learning to worship in quiet reflection and ancient surroundings. Yeah? Full of liturgy and contemplation. For some, can't get past the joy of engaging with Jesus through the richness of old hymns that they learned when they were growing up. And they, others prefer to stick on the Spotify playlist and go for a walk. Yeah? very good artist friend of mine just paints. That's how she worships Jesus. All of these are helpful and none of them are what worship is. They're merely the mechanisms we use to express our worship to God. They're all equally valid or equally completely useless depending on our heart and the way in which we use them to help us in our worship. Now on my shelf uh, amongst a number of books that I have on the subject of worship is one entitled, How Would Jesus Lead Worship? What a great title for a book. How Would Jesus Lead Worship? Um, 
If you're a young person contemplating that this morning, you might have this image of this really cool young Jesus stepping out onto stage, strapping on his very expensive Taylor acoustic guitar, and uh, leading the throng in some beautiful, intimate and heartfelt worship punctuated with a bit of random prophetic stuff, uh, some freestyling and everybody singing in tongues at the end of it. If he grew up in a different church culture, you might envision him maybe as the strong lead voice at the front of the choir around which all other voices gather. And that's how it goes. You might imagine him as the lead chanter in a monastic community where everybody else just intones the amen at the end of whatever they've said. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, actually. But when Jesus participated in song worship, and by the way, do you know he did? Jesus sang hymns with his disciples. It's recorded in the scripture, probably in Aramaic, probably using the structure braced around one of the Psalms. And it would have sounded really weird to us because it would have been all Middle Eastern scales and harmonies and wouldn't have sounded anything like the way that we sing would probably felt quite different to what we understand our experience of worship to be about. But even that doesn't give us a how-to model. Even Jesus didn't come together, this is how you worship. It only gives us an insight into how Jesus expressed worship in that community with his disciples. But let's get back to the passage a little bit. I'm going to flick some of this, I think. Ooh, yeah, let's get back to Samaria, shall we? So... I don't know how much you know about Samaria and what went on with the Jews and the Gentiles and why they don't have much to do with each other at all. So let's just do a little recap of a couple of bits and pieces because there's a few different things in here. Good to see you. Oh, look at that. Little mountains drawn in there. Look at that. That's a beautiful place. Anybody know where that is? You can read it if you're careful. Uh, Yeah. Gerizim's on the left and Mount Ebel's on the right. There's all kinds of things that are fascinating fascinating about the area of Samaria. Do you know, where Jesus was is the place where God first showed um, Abraham the promised land and said, this I'm going to give to you. He stood somewhere there. And God said to him, I'm going to give this to you and your descendants. Um, And there's all kinds of fantastic bits and pieces that went on in that place. It's the place where Joseph as in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, is buried. It's the place where Joshua, who led the invasion of the Promised Land, spoke his very last words. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebel are the two mountains off which Joshua had the people stand on the top of either side, and off the one mountain all of the blessings for the people coming into the land were going to be pronounced. On the other side of it, all the curses for failing to follow God and do what... Uh, he asked them to do were pronounced off the other thing. It's got massive history. So it's spiritually, politically really important. Shechem, which is the, the, the city just at the bottom that we saw on there, is, became the capital after the Israelites and uh, Judah split away from each other. And it's the place from which the, uh, the ten tribes disappeared off and uh, became their capital city. So it's been a significant place for Jews and Samaritans for thousands of years. Thousands of years. 
Sorry, a little bit of history, but this is why it's important. So, so in around 721 BC, the Assyrians overthrew Samaria and they chucked 27,000 of the inhabitants out and replaced them with a load of people from other places. And they brought with them their own styles of worship, their own gods, their own cultures, their own practices. And the people of Samaria naturally ended up intermarrying with them and the worship of Yahweh in their culture became mashed up and mixed up with all of this other idolatrous stuff that was going on around them. Fast forward about 250 years and Nehemiah came back. Do you remember thinking about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls uh, of Jerusalem? Yeah. So Nehemiah comes back and the main centre of political and religious authority at that time has shifted from Jerusalem and he's now focused around Shechem at this big back. Now, Sychar, where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman, some people reckon it is the same as Shechem. It's more likely to be a little suburb or a little village just outside it. But this whole area is surrounded by this political and religious focus and culture. So, Sambalat and Tobiah, characters from the story of Nehemiah, San, Sanballat the Horonite, yeah? And uh, Tobiah the Almonite, it's thought that they lived in this location here. These people who opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the re-establishment of worship uh, there. They were Samaritan people. That's where they came from. And then when uh, Nehemiah discovered that the high priest at the time had been um, uh, uh, renting out some of the rooms in the temple to Tobiah the Almonite, and the fact that actually the high priest's grandson had married one of the daughters of Sambalat, he kicked them, that part of the priesthood, out of Jerusalem and they went and lived with um, Sambalat as father-in-law. And being priests and part of the priesthood, what did they do? They set up another temple on Mount Gerizim and copied it off the one in Jerusalem and had a whole priestly network working, copying the stuff that happened in Jerusalem in Samaria. Mashed up and surrounded by all this other idolatrous stuff and all these other gods and idols that were being worshipped and practised with. That's what Jesus comes to. That's why Jews and Samaritans don't associate with each other and why there's so much animosity between them. By the time Jesus meets the woman at the well, for nearly 500 years, these guys have been, we worship him on this mountain, you can worship on that mountain. Never the twain shall meet. That's the reason for it. And Jesus says to the woman, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. Did you hear that in the reading this morning? You worship what you don't know. But it contains with it the suggestion that you can't just worship God however you want to. You can't just go and set up another temple with another priesthood in another location because what you do and where you do it has never been what true worship is about. It's never about the place or the method or the religious practice or the mechanisms. Worship's about the heart and the motive and the attitude. So Jesus points out to the woman that God's spirit Therefore, thinking we can lock him into a place and focus our worship on a place, whether that's Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, misses the point. It's the same way that loud guitars or quiet reflection are not about worship. 
this mountain or that mountain is completely irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with a heart of worship. True worshippers must worship in spirit and truth, Jesus tells her. Now, if you've got an NIV Bible, you'll notice that the NIV traits it as worship in the spirit, as in spirit with a capital S, as in the Holy Spirit. If you look at the original, that's not what Jesus actually said. Now, there's truth in that, and I'll come on to that in a minute. But it's important, because this is Jesus helping someone understand the difference between this mountain and that mountain, this style or that style, this priesthood or that priesthood. It's about spirit, and it's about truth. When Jesus talks about worshipping in spirit, he's really talking about, the closest I can come up with, I think, is your inner being. The inner person, the inner man, the inner woman. When God wants our worship, he doesn't want the externals of it. He wants the internals, our heart, our devotion, the spirit, the essence of who we are inside of us. That's what he wants us to bring in. It's internal, not external. And when he says, in spirit and in truth, that's less about our doctrinal understanding of what God's like and whether it's okay to mash up our worship with a few other things thrown in around the side of it. It's actually about truth and integrity within our inner man. So what Jesus is saying to this woman is you've got to worship from the inside of who you are. Who you are is what God wants you to bring in. And it doesn't actually matter whether that's in everyday life, like Romans 12 one would say to us, what's the message translation? Something about take your everyday life, your walking, eating, sleeping, drinking, wandering around life, and do it all as an offering for God. That's, that's part of what can be a mechanism for our worship. But even that isn't. Because I know a load of people that eat and drink and wander around all day and they're not worshipping God. Everything isn't worship just because we think it is or we say it is. It's worship because inwardly, in the truth of who we are, we're expressing something to God as our Father. Same in our corporate gatherings. It's worship when we intentionally give ourselves to God. Really quickly now, but why I understand the NIV translates in the Spirit because, of course, earlier in John's Gospel, where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, um, Jesus says, actually, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. So there's a real sense in which if we want our inner man, our inner spirit, able to connect with God and bring him the worship that he deserves, that's got to come from a connection with the Spirit of God himself. It's at Our spirits are enlivened, invigorated, brought to birth and enabled to worship by the presence of the Spirit of God at work in us. So is it our spirit and the Spirit of God? Yes. Both. Yeah. One doesn't really happen without the other. And in the same way that truths about our inner integrity, about being real before God and coming from a place of honestly expressing our heart, but it's also about expressing and declaring the truth of who God is, speaking out his true character and nature, praising the wonder of all he's done in and through Jesus who 
is himself the truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? It's both our inner integrity, our inner reality being brought before God. But it's also about connecting with the spirit of God and actually declaring the truth and living in the truth of who Jesus is. So it's about worshipping in a way that expects and welcomes encounter with Jesus. Why is it such a priority to us? Because the presence of Jesus amongst us as community is the most important thing that we can have. Everything that we do here without the presence of Jesus is pointless and meaningless, I would even suggest. Lord, if you don't go with us, you know, don't send us anywhere. Don't send us up from this place. was Moses' prayer right back when the promised land was given to him. And it should be our prayer as well. Lord, if you're not here, if you don't come, if you don't reveal yourself, what's the point? But of course, as Matt already said, every time we go looking for God, God shows up. God always turns up when we turn to him. Because Jesus promised, didn't he? A well of living water welling up from inside of us. God's spirit, our spirit, bubbling up, enabling and filling us up, becoming a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Worship's not for us, is it? It shouldn't be. There is, however, I think, a real danger in contemporary worship that we end up going chasing an experience of God's presence in our worship, which actually is about, Lord, bless me, please, bless me, bless me. May I feel blessed, please, Lord? Um, And actually, if I don't feel blessed this morning, uh, worship wasn't very good this morning, was it? (laughs) You ever had one of those? Worship wasn't very good this morning, was it? What a nonsensical thing to say. And it isn't really what we're saying, is it? What we're really saying is, I didn't get anything out of that. (laughs) But who said it was anything about you? Or about me? Or about any of us collectively? It is all about Jesus. But, when we're pursuing God ourselves, there's never going to be a moment when encountering him does not mean that we are blessed and changed by that experience. I love the little phrase uh, in, in the beginning of the book of Acts where they take a notice that the disciples have been with Jesus. You know? Anyone that's been with Jesus anywhere in the scripture has got changed by that encounter. Even those that walked away found themselves confronted by something in Jesus. We can't gather to his presence and go away unchanged. So why does it matter? Because we need changing. I need changing. You need changing. We all need transforming. Yeah? Lives transformed by the presence and the compassion of Jesus. Meeting him changes us. And of course he invites us to drink. If you'd known who he was speaking to, you, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And you wouldn't be thirsty again. And that is Jesus' invitation as we come to him in worship. 
Will you meet with us, Lord? Will you fill us up with your presence, with your spirit? Will you help us to be changed and transformed into your image? We're going to do some of that now because I'm talking too long. So let's just get on and do it practically. But we're going to use some music as a mechanism to facilitate our worship in this place this morning. And we can pick up the guitars and we can strum some things and we can just waste the next 15 minutes utterly pointlessly if we want to. Or we can bring the reality of who we are, the truth of who we are, whatever you're bringing this morning. And can we just say, if you're in a place of struggle today, that's absolutely fine. Jesus is just as interested in your place of struggle as he is in your place of, I'm really up for this this morning, Lord God. The only thing God wants, as reading through the Psalms has taught us again over the summer, is honesty and integrity in our inner heart about where we're coming from. If you want to not sing the songs and quietly say, Lord, I just need you to sort this stuff out because actually that's wrecking me at the moment and this situation in my life feels like it's creating some distance between me and you and actually I'm even slightly resentful of the fact that you haven't fixed it yet, Lord. So will you just get off your big God butt and do something in my moment for me? Honestly, I think God's quite happy with a prayer like that. You might get a little slap back about, hang on, what was that we were talking about before? God's never under the impression that he's me. But what I'm saying is the fact that I think God wants our reality, even though that's a cry out of desperation and frustration in our worship, just as much as he wants us to lift him up and to big him up and to declare the truth of all he is. Why do we do it like we do at Creech? That's just one way. But there is something special about joining hearts and voices together, isn't it? Lifting up the Lord in song. Have you ever been in a secular concert where there's just been a moment where it's all just so beautiful and poignant you can hear a pin drop? There's something inherent in music, whatever is done with it, that affects our heart and our emotions and, and it's, you know, I think it's a gift of God. God gave us music as a mechanism, as a vehicle to express ourselves to each other and to him. And maybe it connects us into the fact that the morning stars were singing at the creation of the world and have been singing their unhurt song out since. And maybe it connects us to the anthem of the heavenly hosts all singing around the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And maybe it links us to all those other believers all around this nation and this world today who will be singing in their own language and in their own styles the same songs of praise that we're singing this morning. And actually, I think that all of those things are true. But honestly, it's just one way of expressing our worship together. But I think it's quite a good way. And it works for me. So we're going to worship Jesus together now. Are you up for that? Yeah. Amen. Good. Let's go.